are healthy. Radio Addiction starts now. And welcome to the Motorcycle Madhouse. Today we are going to be doing something different. As everyone knows, I'm a history buff. And the 60s were the era that I really like talking about. I believe the 60s are the ones that define what the biker lifestyle is today. A lot of we know came from the 60s. But besides the biker lifestyle, I also want to talk about the events that took in place during that uh, period, like the JFK assassination, the Cuban Missile Crisis, and I wanted to talk to a biker that lived it, that can give us some perspective of what happened back then, the way the country was feeling, and just, you know, I'm calling this the Bikers in History segment right here, the Bikers that lived it, and today we got Judge on, as you know, Judge is one of the co-owners of Bikers and Brotherhood, and one of the administrators over there, and he is growing that group just wide open. Uh, last I look at it, it's almost at 9,000 people, and they are rocking and rolling over there, and we got Judge on the line. How you doing, Judge? I'm doing great, Hollywood. How are you doing? I am doing great. I'm so excited for this segment today. Uh, like I've told you off air, I am a huge history buff, and I think this is something that the audience really like, is hearing from bikers that actually lived during the events that we're talking about. Well, yeah, because um, uh, it was... Uh, you know, it was a pivotal point for us. I was uh, I was in uh, freshman year in high school when uh, the president was assassinated. Man, and, freshman. Oh. Yeah, and and it was it was really strange. I I remember uh, I was headed to Spanish class and and passed uh, one of my classmates in the hall, Mike, and and Mike. For, for lack of a better term, was was uh, maybe the earliest conspiracy theorist I'd, I'd ever met. I mean, he always, you know, was coming up with something off the wall, and we were like, yeah, yeah, whatever, Mike. And he always had his little transistor radio with it. Boy, there's another flash. <laughs> <laughs> transistor. <laughs> and so he was listening to it, and as I was starting to head up the stairs, he said, the president has been assassinated. And I went, okay. And and went on to my class because I thought, you know, Mike's smoking something or whatever. And we got into Spanish class, and we were in there maybe 10 minutes when the announcement came over the school uh, PA system that, in fact, President Kennedy had been assassinated in Dallas. Man. And almost to a person, we burst into tears. And... And even even our Spanish teacher, who was an interesting little lady, she was actually Cuban and had actually gone to college with Fidel Castro. And she started crying. And they let school out uh, probably 30 minutes later. They had the buses lined up, and, and we went home. And at home it was interesting because... 
I was raised in a staunch Republican family. And I know that neither of my parents were very thrilled that John Kennedy had been elected president. I don't know why they would have wanted Richard Nixon, but um, yeah, right. <laughs> they, they weren't real thrilled about that. And yet, because it was the assassination of a president, regardless of the party, they were both very moved by it as well. And we were just kind of in a fog on that day. And, and it was a day or so later, I don't remember exactly what day of the week it was uh, that we heard about it. Um, I, I think I want to say it was a Thursday and, uh, on Saturday I went up to the local bowling alley, which is where I used to like to hang out and, and maybe bowl and, and drink Cokes and, and whatever. And I was passing the television set at the snack bar when I saw Jack Ruby <laughs> kill Lee Harvey Oswald. And I was like, what is happening? What is going on? And I turned around and went home and, and, and my parents hadn't seen it on TV. Mm-hmm. Uh, although I will say that generally speaking in our house and every house I knew the TVs were not turned off from the time Kennedy was assassinated until at least that, that following Monday. I mean, we followed every news story, everything we could find on it. And, and it was just, it was heartbreaking because he was the first president that I actually could listen to his speeches. I mean, I grew up in the era of Dwight Eisenhower. And although he was a great general, boring on TV. Right. And, and I would, you know, go in the other room or whatever. I didn't care. I wasn't into politics. But, but Kennedy inspired a whole generation of Republicans and Democrats. Oh, exactly. What was the news coverage like that day? You know, take us through that day it happened. What was it? It was nonstop. There were there were none of the regular programs on, and and you have to remember in those days we had three basic channels: the networks, and then we had like a, a public television station. But but. Uh, the three networks, it was nonstop coverage. That's all that was on. And nobody seemed to mind. It wasn't like today where somebody would say, yeah, 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 okay, whatever. Uh, why isn't the prices right on? You know? Right. Um, everyone was glued to their TV. And in their cars, the uh, same thing. They were listening to it on the radio. Because on the radio, even the rock and roll stations, man, it was it was wall-to-wall coverage. I mean, the president has been assassinated. Right. And it was, it was, uh, it was definitely a changing point in all of our lives, both the parents and the kids. Well, I'm interested in one of my, uh, you know, my favorite and the reason why I like journalism so much, Walter Cronkite's uh, view. Oh, man. When, when, when he started to lose it, when he made the announcement that the president was dead and was choking back tears, and I mean, Walter Cronkite was the consummate newsman. Uh, he didn't give you an opinion on a story. He told you the story. And, and uh, when he almost lost it, I think we all did, you know, because it was like, here was this stoic man who had 
been a reporter in World War II and and had had uh, uh, been over to Vietnam before we even knew where it was, and and uh, to see him start to lose it was was just mind numbing as as was the assassination itself. Right now, was it a did they immediately zero in on Oswald? Well, no, not not originally. I mean, they were still trying to piece it all together, and um, but it was uh, you know not too long after that that uh, Officer Tippett was uh, shot and killed in the Oak Cliff area of Dallas, and they um, had had been piecing bits and pieces of it together up to that point, and and then I think uh, it. it because of tips and whatever, uh, it began to lead in his direction. And it really took them a remarkably short amount of time to figure out who they were after and for what. And, and they cornered him uh, in a seat at the Texas Theater. And uh, then the rest, of, rest after that was, uh, uh, you know, just following what was going to happen to him and, and, and where do we go from here as a country? Because I, I'll be honest, I didn't like the vice president. I didn't like Lyndon B. Johnson, and and you know now he was going to be president, and we didn't know what to expect. And and as I suspected, he he wasn't uh, he wasn't uh, what I would have hoped for. Although he did pass lots of landmark legislation. Right now, you know when I went down there for my first honeymoon, actually. And I went up to the book depository, and you looked out that window. Do you honestly, you know, you were in the military, am I correct? Yes. Now, do you, as a person in the military, and I don't know if you've ever been up to that window, do you believe that he could have made that shot? I believe, I believe it's possible he could have made that shot, but I also say that making three shots uh, with a bolt-action rifle in a relatively short space of time um, is a little questionable to me. Um, I, I have always thought that uh, perhaps there was another shooter. Um, but, you know, uh, <laughs> we, we blindly uh, uh, follow things like the Warren Commission report. And, and you know, but I, I, I'm not a conspiracy theorist, but, but I will have doubts that he pulled it off by himself. Now, was there any? Because, uh, I mean, he was a he was a known uh, uh, communist sympathizer, you know, and had right. been to Cuba. And there was there were enough people in powerful positions that wanted Kennedy dead, the Teamsters and uh, the mob and and everybody else. And so, you know, to believe that someone else was involved, yeah, that that makes sense to me. Right now, did the news coverage uh, or did uh, well not the news coverage, but did ordinary uh, citizens were their conspiracy theories? When did they start right up? I don't think they started real until the Warren Commission report was out, and 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 it's because you know, especially uh, uh, because of the case of the magic bullet that supposedly passed through Kennedy, passed through the seat, passed through Connolly, and yet was a, a bullet that was not misshapen at all, you know? And, and that can't happen. I mean, a bullet is going to, to uh, compress and whatever, and to see this bullet laying on the gurney that was in pristine shape, it's like, 
what? You know, so there, you know, we started to question as bits and pieces of it were released. And then there was always the theory that I think what added to the conspiracy theory was the fact that they would not and have not released um, the x-rays of, of his skull, of his brain, which would definitely show the direction of the bullets. Right. And and they said those would be uh, secured and, and not released for 75 years. And I went, why? You know, there were a lot of questions. Well, one of my biggest questions, if you look at the autopsy photo of JFK, he has that big, uh, you know, it's like the back of his head is blown off. Now, if he right. was, now, you know, if he was shot from the back, it would have a little hole and his whole face would have been blown off instead of the back. Am I correct? Well, generally speaking, yes, but it's the same as like when you see someone shot in a movie and they fall backwards. A lot of times they fall forwards. So um, it is conceivably possible depending on the type of round. But, I mean, those looked like like standard military-style rounds. They weren't fragmentation rounds. And so, yeah, there there was a lot of question about that. And and uh, then the uh, the... the Conspiracy about the the three hobos behind the fence on the other side of the grassy knoll, and uh, one of the theories uh, was that one of them was Charles Harrelson, um, who of course was Woody Harrelson's dad, and was later sent to prison for killing a federal judge. So, you know, there there are a lot of loose ends, and mm-hmm. and you know you have to either blindly believe what the government tells you. Or you have to question it. Right. What did you, you know, you had to see Jackie uh, at the airport and Jackie Onassis. uh, Wow, what a lady she was. She was like the, she was our version of uh, what a queen would be in in the United States. She was. Oh, exactly. Yeah, they were, they were royalty to us. Right, right. What was your feelings as a freshman teenager seeing Jackie going up on that plane and stuff. And she uh, intentionally kept on the dress that had the blood of her husband on it. Yeah. um, I I felt so sorry for her because I I couldn't even imagine the terror she went through. I mean, just the photos of her trying to climb across the, the, the trunk deck of the car to get that secret service agent up there. I mean, it, it was just, it all happened so very quickly. And, um, and that was also, but I, I mean, it, it caused so many changes in the country, Hollywood, you know, things like they don't now publish the route ahead of time of the president, you know, um, mm-hmm. because of the Kennedy assassination. Um, but everybody knew what that route was, including Lee Harvey Oswald. Right. Well, a lot they of people gun laws started coming out, uh, especially after that, where uh, I think it was felons couldn't uh, have firearms and all that. Well, and of course, the thing about it is, in those days, yeah, I mean, uh, the law was, uh, and the same way he got the rifle, uh, you see an ad in a magazine for a Manlicker Carcano carbine like he had, and it was like $7.98 by mail order. And you sent in the money, uh, uh, you know, and and you got the gun in the mail. I mean, yeah, there was it was a much looser time on getting firearms back then. Mm-hmm. Now, did you uh, were did the school? Well, you were a freshman in high school. Now, did they call off classes during the funeral and stuff? 
You know what? I I wish I could tell you yes, I did, but I don't really remember. Mm. Um, I I think we may have watched it, okay. you know, or it occurred on a day when we were home. Mm. You know, I don't remember. I, uh, part of my brain says that you know I watched it on TV, but I don't remember if it was at home or at school. Right now, did you actually uh, get to see uh, Little John with his salute? As, uh, I did, by. I did, and uh, I mean, like I say, uh, if we were anywhere near a TV, and I don't care if you walked into a TV store or the bowling alley or wherever it was where there was a TV plant, there was a crowd of people standing around watching it and not saying a thing. I mean, it was a, it was a very, very moving ceremony, and uh, yeah, John John's salute uh, uh, got to a lot of us. Right. Now, how paralyzed was the country, and how long did it last? Well, you know, it's because the transition of power took place on the plane, taking his body back to Washington. Um, you know, I, I I don't know that anyone was paralyzed. They they just uh, they just said, "Well, there's a new president, and we carry on." You know. Uh, uh, it wasn't that we were forgetting about Kennedy. It's just that now we have to stand behind our new president. Right. And Johnson, you know, like you said, I, you know, I'm a history fan. I don't like the way Johnson was. He was a warmonger, I think, with the Vietnams, uh, getting people into the Vietnam War. Uh, but you lived it. I only read it in history books. So can you speak on something uh, like that? Well, I wasn't, I wasn't as... Uh, pissed off at, at Johnson as I was as his defense secretary, Robert McNamara, oh, Mac. um, <laughs> who really escalated everything beyond control and <laughs> lied about it for years. And it was only uh, in the last uh, couple of decades that he came out with a book and he admitted he was wrong and he admitted he lied. And, you know, but, but you know, my main unit that I was in when I went to Vietnam myself um, although I didn't stay with the main unit, I joined uh, recon teams. But in my main unit, we lost 51 people. Oh, my God. Oh, my And guys I went to school with who were in other units, I didn't find out until uh, reunion time that, that uh, some of them had been killed over there. So that would have placed... And, uh, uh, how, how- you know when you know because I know the uh, the 40s and 50s there was a real patriotic feeling in America, but in the 60s it started to turn anti-government uh, and anti-war. Why did that take place? You know I find it so interesting how patriotic people were until that war. Well, I think part of it was television went to war. Mm-hmm. And it hadn't been there before. It wasn't available before. And as the body counts went up on, the, on both sides, um, the young people, especially the college students, said, this is wrong. Why are we fighting a war 10,000 miles away? What business do we have being there? You know, much the same as they ask that now about the Middle East and and wherever uh, we've got troops in harm's way. 
And, and it was the students of America that turned things around as, as far as getting us out of there. Um, um, and, you know, I, it was different in those days, too, because their protests, generally speaking, were peaceful protests. They were sit-ins or lions or whatever. And, and they weren't violent like they are now. And, and uh, that's, I'm sad to see it that way. I mean, protest is good. You know, there's no question about it. It sometimes awakens you. Now, that being said, it was exceedingly difficult on those of us coming home. Oh, yeah. Um, you guys went through hell. Well, we did. In fact, uh, when we flew uh, into the airport in San Francisco, they had already had us change out a uniform into civilian clothes just so we could make it through the airport without being spit on or accosted in some way. Oh, my God. What a shame. You're hearing it all here right now. This is from a Vietnam veteran that this happened to. Man. Yeah, it was, uh, in fact, uh, <laughs> this, this will sound strange to uh, someone who's been a biker most of his life, but one of the jobs I was kind of interested in uh, when I got out of the service, well, I'd, I'd gone to high school for the four years that we lived outside of Buffalo, New York. When I got out of the service, my dad had been transferred to Dallas, Texas. And one of the jobs I thought I wanted, I'd thought about it since I was a kid, was to be a police officer. And I applied to the Dallas Police Department. Right. Made it through all of their tests, physical agility, all of that sort of thing. We got to the interview process, and the guy saw that I was a combat vet and had only been home for about two months, and he said, no. My God. I was turned down for it. Why would they do that? You had the experience. Well, but I also just came out of a combat zone. Oh, yeah. So <laughs> then uh, there was a job for stockbroker trainees. And I thought, whoa, there's something I could get into. Applied for that and was turned down for that for the same reason. And so my first meaningful job uh, that I really liked was in radio. And I got that. And, and I don't know if it's because the fact I lied on my application or not, but I told them I was 4F which was unfit for military service. Right. And they hired me. So there's a whole different way of thinking back in the 60s for our troops than there is today. Oh, yeah. I mean, uh, in later years, there were several Vietnam vets who were uh, Dallas police officers. You know, they changed their, their opinions on it. But they were trying to keep the public happy, you know, the public was against the Vietnam War, and if they had gotten wind that they had just hired an officer who was in the Vietnam War, oh, it would have been, would have been awful. That's <laughs> it really is here. Well, yeah, it was. It was very depressing. Do you think, uh, you know, because Kennedy, he, was a, he wasn't uh, for escalating the Vietnam War, from what I read anyway, and is that true? Yeah, I think I think uh, he was uh, becoming of the mind to dial it back. And of course, you have to remember, war is big business. 
you know, um, a lot of big companies make a lot of big money off of war. And, and those were some of the people he had angered as well. Um, uh, Johnson escalated it. And, uh, um, that was in direct opposition to what Kennedy wanted. Kennedy was trying to find a way to extract us from that. He realized that perhaps, um, um, he had made a mistake in sending the first advisors over. And then the, uh, you know, like I say, it all escalated after he was assassinated. Right. Now, one thing that, uh, especially in today's political climate, where, uh, and you, you served in the Vietnam War, so I'd like to get your thoughts on this, but you see college kids, you, well, there's even a park in uh, Seattle with a, uh, a statue of Lenin, and people really don't realize what the Soviet Union was day what they were back then and you lived through the cuban missile crisis that is yeah. the scariest from what i heard periods uh in american history where the world went out to the brink uh oh yeah what's and, your and thoughts i mean we had a house that we lived in that had a bomb shelter in the basement oh wow and it was just a way of life i mean anybody who was anybody had a bomb shelter um and yeah, uh, I think it, it hit home that we were very, very close um, uh, to a war with the Soviet Union, and um, it. Uh, we were glad the blockade worked um, because certainly um, that was a um, uh, a peaceful way of of ending the situation. Um, because you know, I mean, when you think about it, you know, Cuba's only ninety miles off the coast. Right. I mean, good heavens! You could just about toss a grenade that far, you know. Right. And and to know that there were uh, missiles down there that were capable of hitting anywhere in America, um, that was that was really scary. It was, and but it it also strengthened my belief because I had believed ever since I was a young kid that after high school I was going to go in the military, and um, of course we still had the draft. Which, um, you know, it, most countries, um, well, we'll take, take Israel just as, as an example. Everybody there who gets their education from the state, um, um, when they graduate high school, are required to serve a minimum of two years in the military. It's a way of paying back. And that being said, not all military jobs are jobs that are in warfare. Um, there's a lot of support uh, staff and, and people like that that are needed as well. Um, I think to get the education and give nothing back for it is uh, is kind of wrong, you know. Uh, I will say this. The, the military now is more educated than we were. They certainly have better weapons and, in many cases, better commanders. Um, but at the same point, there should be some obligation to pay back, you know, uh, whether it's, I, I don't care if it's the Peace Corps or, you know, whatever, but something uh, just to say, hey, thanks for 12 years of education. Right, right. Now, what was, now, did you, how was the news reporting during the Cuban Missile Crisis? Were you up to date or did they just give you news flashes of what was going on? 
Well, we we knew every day where where it was going. We knew uh, where the ships were positioned. We'd seen the satellite photos of the missiles. We'd seen the satellite photos of the ships that were carrying missiles heading towards Cuba. And um, so, yeah, they they kept us up to date on it. It wasn't obviously wall-to-wall like it was for the assassination, but it was on the news every day while it went, and it was generally the the lead story. Mm Mm-hmm. Right. Now, do you think uh, if, say, uh, Johnson was president during the Cuban Missile Crisis, it would have came out different? Oh, yeah. Yeah, there's no doubt in my mind. Um, Because the people who were advising him, I mean, Robert McNamara proved that with the Vietnam War. My God, if you turned him loose with the Cuban Missile Crisis as Secretary of Defense, we would have probably bombed Cuba. And then, no, and then Russia would have been upset that we bombed Cuba, and we'd have ended up in the same situation. Right, right. Now, you talk about uh, the Vietnam air. Uh, I believe that is an air of uh, bikers that really cultivated what we are now. And a lot of uh, the different protocols. Well, before I get into that, uh, I have to say one of the bad legacies of that war and something that the American people need to know, especially as our veterans are getting older, was that there was a government uh, type of cover-up, I believe, in Agent Orange. Oh, absolutely. Uh, That stuff was supposed to be diluted heavily. Uh, I forget the exact ratio, but it was like 70 to 1 or 80 to 1 diluted with water. And they were spraying at full strength. Now, can you tell and, tell everybody what Agent Orange is? Agent Orange is a defoliant. Um, if you drop it on a forest full of trees, especially full strength, within uh, 24 to 30 hours, there's no leaf in sight. You know? <laughs> and, why did they, and why did they use it? Well, they used that because the jungle canopy was so heavy in some areas. And and for the safety of the troops, which, boy, that turned out to be wrong. Um, but for the safety of the troops, if you knew where there were high concentrations of, of North Vietnamese traffic, you wanted to clear that area of vegetation so you could at least see them um, if, if they were moving equipment or, or personnel. And um, the thing that was, was doubly sad about it was... The expended barrels that the uh, Agent Orange had had been in, uh, those expended barrels were cut open and used to burn uh, garbage at at the base camps. So now anybody that's inhaling that smoke (laughs) was getting Agent Orange effects too. I lost a very good brother of 30 years. We buried him about three years ago. And he had been fine up until about five years prior to that. And then almost overnight, he had leukemia. He had various cancers showing up throughout his body. And in the space of uh, five years, he went from healthy and vibrant to uh, buried at the National Cemetery in uh, Texas. Mm -hmm. When did uh, the first signs that, uh, you know, the soldiers that came back from Vietnam started showing uh, the effects of Agent Orange? Oh, I think very early, but doctors didn't know what it was. 
And so the popular belief and the popular story that was coming out from the VA was it was not war-related. It was something else. Um, it's only been in the last 25 years, maybe 30, that the government has finally admitted that that's what it caused. And the problem now they're finding also is that it's not just the veterans that were exposed, but sometimes it's their children and sometimes their grandchildren that are affected by this stuff. So it was passed down, too. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It, it, was, it was carried in the genes to future generations. And so, you know, while, while you may um, uh, finally be recognizing and, and doing something to treat the non-vets, uh, you're not doing anything for their families. Right. Right. So there ain't no legislation or anything for the families. Uh, no, that's that's up. I mean, you know, the government just admitted it affected the troops. And and now studies are showing, like I say, that it's a, a it's a generational gene that is sometimes passed down. Mm-hmm. And so kids or grandkids who were otherwise healthy now have leukemia or whatever. And uh, you know what? It, oh, that's messed up. Uh, but. You know, oh, that kind of it, it does piss you off when you got your guys over there fighting, and the government does that to you. Just it's out of whack. Well, it is, and and you know, uh, I'm not saying it would have been as bad had they properly mixed the dioxin uh, and 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 diluted it the way it was supposed to be. But I think it was a thousand times worse to just drop it without without. Uh, 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 weakening it at all. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, I get a lot of people because I'm really, I really go out there and say it was the Vietnam Air biker that we have what we have today. And I believe it's because of their strength, what they went through. And uh, I guess uh, they had to stick together because of the stuff when they came home that the American citizens did to them as far as not supporting them. Uh, spin on them, so they had a band together, and I believe well, that's well, what makes also, them different. Also, though, James, I think because you got to remember, the first bike clubs were started by World War II vets, mm-hmm. and then they they accepted with open arms uh, the Vietnam vets, mm-hmm. and um, because when when I needed help to deal with nightmares and whatever. Um, I went to uh, the American Legion. I went to the VFW and was turned away. Uh, VFW said, well, you weren't in a war. Oh, my God. Because it was never a declared war. Um, It was a military action, they say, right? Yes, it was a military action. It was a police action. And and, uh, the same thing happened with American Legion and whatever. Now, years later, 40 years later, 35, I would go with a friend of mine to the VFW hall for their Memorial Day uh, cookout or whatever. And I had one of their members one day say, we would like you to join the VFW. And I said, well, if you'll answer me a question honestly, I will give it honest consideration. And I said, do you want us to join because you now appreciate the fact that we were in a war? Or do you want us to join because 
your members are dying out and you want to keep the VFW alive. And he told me, we're doing it because our members are dying out and we want to keep the VFW alive. So oh my God. even as, as far as 35 years ago, they were not recognizing or acknowledging the fact that we were in a war. <laughs> That's terrible. <laughs> well, yeah. And I said, you know, when I needed you people, I said, you weren't around. So all due respect, but go F yourself. Right, right. Oh, my God. Uh, is it, Do they still think that way? Uh, no, because most of the old school who felt that way passed on. <laughs> right, right. I, I know several people, well, including my buddy DJ. Uh, he's been a member of VFW for... Uh, Several decades now. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, it, you know what? It, it, I, I hate to compare different types of wars and stuff, but uh, World War II against the Vietnam War, I think it was a different kind of soldier. Uh, the Vietnam Air soldiers, they were some tough son of a bitches, man. Well, and a lot of them were draftees. And the draft unfortunately, was weighted more towards uh, minorities. Mm -hmm. And I say that because a lot of the uh, Caucasian, white, whatever you want to call uh, people, uh, were getting into college and getting college deferments or whatever. And and a lot of the black people or, 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 or young men of color um, were not getting into college, so they were drafted. Right, right. So, you know, now you have to, you know, have graduated. You, you, um, uh, that, so it is a much more intelligent force. Um, but at the same point, I'm not giving short shrift to uh, any of the soldiers I served with, whether they were black, white, Native American, didn't matter. Um, they were all tough sons of bitches. Right, right. How do you think uh, that error shaped what we are now? Well, it did completely because it changed everybody's feeling about wars, especially wars that were that far away. I mean, if the war is at your border, I think you would have the same amount of patriotism that you had in World War II soldiers who, who lied about their age to get in and, and to go fight Nazi Germany. Right. Um, or, or the Japanese. And, and I think if it was, uh, you know, coming through Canada or coming through Mexico or coming on, on the east or west coast, I think to a person, even the anti-war people wouldn't be out there with flowers. They'd be out there with guns. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah, if it was you at know. our border. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I've, I've got a, a friend in Dallas, and, and bless his heart, he's, he's totally anti-gun. But he said to me one day, and I always got tickled by it, he said, well, if it ever does come to that type of situation, can I come over and hide behind you? <laughs> and I said, yes, only if you'll take instructions on how to load a, a magazine. <laughs> right. <laughs> what do you think is the difference between, uh, and, you know, Guys, if you ever meet a World War II veteran, you better shake their hand because there's not many of them that are going to be left in the next five to six years. Uh, no. But what do you think is the difference between the World War 
two biker and the Vietnam bike? Well, you know, really not a lot in the fact that one of the things that you don't experience when you come back to the United States is that, that teamwork. You know, you go to work for a job and it's every man for himself. And, and in the biker community, you've got that brotherhood. You've got people that'll stand beside you. Um, you've got people that'll give you a hug just because they're glad to see you. And, and, uh, you know, it's, I think it's, I, I think the common bond between warriors is, is the fact of, of the brotherhood. Right. It's, it's of that being a team, being part of a team again. Right. Now, do you think uh, the Vietnam air biker stepped up the rebellious streak of uh, the lifestyle compared to the uh, World War II? Vet? Oh, yeah. Yeah, there's no question about it. And a lot of that maybe, and this is just my own personal opinion, maybe due to the fact of the reception we got when we got home. Mm. So it was kind of like, you know, F you. You know, right, and, and and I think the attitudes definitely changed because uh, uh, World War II vets were welcomed home with parades. They were guaranteed jobs. They they you know um, that's that's actually when the GI Bill uh, started happening was after World War II, wasn't it? It did, and and here's another thing: in mentioning the GI Bill, when I signed up, when I took that oath, one of the things that the GI Bill promised us was free health care for life. That's not the way it is. If you've got the ability to pay, you have to pay. Oh, that's and I'm like, BS. excuse me, that's not the contract I signed. But oh, that's, oh, man. So you wonder why Vietnam vets got attitudes. It's because you stripped things like that away from us. You you didn't want to take care of us if we, you know, if we had the ability to pay at all, we had to pay. Right, right. I cannot believe that. You know, and all vets should be get free health care. They should even get free freaking housing. You know, what the hell what they did for this country? Yeah, because World War II vets did get that. They got all of that. And, and, and I mean... Um, they were heroes, and we were zeros. And that is, that's unfortunate. You know, one thing uh, people, uh, they kick me in the ass about all the time is I say, well, you're seeing this country right now, it is the effect of uh, those, uh, how can I say, uh, tree huggers back in the 60s in charge. <laughs> uh, well, but, you know, the funny thing about it is, is a lot of the radicals from the 60s, the Abby Hoffmans and people like that who were so anti-establishment mm-hmm. finished out their lives very establishment. Right. Um, you know, we all change. You know, you're very idealistic as a young person. Um, that's why when you can actually hold a conversation with a young person who thinks that socialism is the way and you tell them, you say, well, but see, nothing is free. It comes from tax dollars. So if you go to work, you're paying for somebody who doesn't go to work right. by choice. And and they're like, well, that's not fair. And you go, that's my point. <laughs> right. Well, you know, it's it, not just, free. Just people the, say, well, it's government money. No, we, we fund the government. 
Right. You know, and, and they, they don't seem to grasp on that. But every young generation is idealistic in their own way. Well, just the other day, a poll came out uh, among uh, the new, uh, the younger generation. Forty-five percent believe in socialism, and I guess I just can't fathom that because I grew up in a different decade. But uh, you know, I grew up under Reagan and stuff. And like, right. socialism, really, forty-five uh, percent. <laughs> well, because <laughs> socialism says to them, everything will be free. Mm-hmm. Your college will be free. Your your medical care will be free. You know, all of this stuff will be free, and they don't understand that money has to come from somewhere, and, and they think, well, the government will just print more. I mean, that's when you're young, that idealism, you know, mm. I mean, it's, it's a natural progression. Now, now, what I also think is the same when we were growing up, you know, there was a common thing of, uh, well, all teenagers are bad. No, the bad ones are on the front of the newspaper. The good ones, the Eagle Scouts and whatever, are in the very back of the newspaper. Oh, you got that Um, I'd like to believe that, you know, you look at any poll, and and the the polling company is going to seek out people that believe what they believe in and only poll them. So if you poll 200 young people and... 45% 45% of them want socialism. That doesn't mean that that it's a fair poll. I mean, look at the polls for the 2016 election. Right, right, right. <laughs> you know, Trump didn't stand a chance. Mm-hmm. Well, he fooled them. Right. <laughs> well, well, you know, uh, getting down to the uh, end of the interview, what do you think uh, how your generation of biker is compared to today's generation? a biker. What's the difference in your viewpoint? Well, I think the new generation of bikers coming up, and and I'm not just talking about motorcycle riders. I'm I'm basically talking about Harley riders. Mm-hmm. Um, they're trying to. They're sort of living up to the image of what they believe the '60s bikers were. Mm-hmm. And then they're taking shows like Sons of Anarchy and Mayans, and believing that that's a you know those are documentaries and not fictional accounts. Um, so they all want to be tough guys, mm-hmm. and you know we got together because we liked each other's camaraderie. We liked to go riding. We liked to drink beer and party. You know, and th- those were the basic tenets. We. You know, there might have been one guy or two that you rode with that sold a little pot here or there, but it wasn't like, holy smokes, we can have a really great lifestyle if we start selling mass quantities of cocaine or right. or running guns or whatever. And and a lot of these kids who are unfortunately starting to rise up through the ranks of some of these clubs, you know, that's where they're taking it. I mean, you know, it's like... Uh, it's like Southern California when they just recruited a bunch of uh, street gangbangers. Right. These guys didn't even ride motorcycles. Oh, yeah. And so the philosophy of your club slowly begins to change and evolve because as us old guys who have been through those wars realize there's a better way. Mm-hmm. Right. You're so um, damn right on that Hopefully one. it will even itself out. Right now I don't have a lot of faith in it. Right. 
Well, the last question I have for you is motorcycle profiling. How was it when you first got going? I'm I'm taking it uh, late 60s, 70s. Oh, they, they, today. they stopped us all the time. You know, um, I actually had a cop one time. I asked him because I hadn't been stopped very often. He said, it's it's because of your bike. And I said, well, what do you mean? It's the same kind of bike the others ride. He goes, some of them look like they're held together with bailing wire and chewing gum. <laughs> he said, we're going to pull those over. <laughs> In other words, they were going to pull over rat bikes. And if you had a, had a patch on your back of any kind, you know, most of the time, they didn't really hassle you. They were just curious. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think it's gotten worse in some communities, but again, it's some clubs or not clubs, some club members who have brought that down. We, we have philosophy. You don't crap in your own yard. Right. And some of these clubs now, they don't care about that. Right. They want to flex their, their power. Mm-hmm. And it's really, and so it's that really... brings more profiling down. Exactly, and it's actually hurting the scene as a whole when they do that kind of shit. Oh, oh, there's no question about it. I mean, you know, we'd have guys that would screw up every now and then, but nothing to the point where the entire community was now down on it. Mm-hmm. Not like it is uh, today. <laughs> if we wanted to do something ignorant, we went to another town. <laughs> right? <laughs> and you talk about Harleys back then, man. They weren't the most reliable bikes during that time, were they? Oh, God, the stories I could tell you. You know, <laughs> right. Riding a riding a, a forty nine pan head that only had a rear brake that was somewhat spongy, and profiling for a couple of chicks down this main drag in Dallas, and as we we're coming up to a stoplight, and I was thinking, boy, they think I'm cool. Uh, I hear this ting 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 sound. I thought, what the hell that was? Well, it was the brake rod, and so. Now I'm downshifting and holding my feet on the pavement, trying to slow down, <laughs> put the kickstand down, walk back about a hundred yards, pick up the brake rod. <laughs> so, yeah. And, and of course that also, we used to carry tools, right? Those and are- now the modern biker carries two things, his cell phone and his mechanic's uh, uh, business card. <laughs> <laughs> or his tow company, yeah. <laughs> if, if everybody who rides a Harley, younger ones, had to start out on a panhead or a knucklehead, they'd have much more appreciation for the newer bikes they ride. Oh, yeah, man, I'm telling you. <laughs> well, you know what? I really thank you for uh, coming on and sharing your, uh, you know, you lived through it. And it was awesome to hear about all the history. I'm a history buff again. And uh, you're killing it over at Bikers and Brotherhood. So, everybody, you guys got to go see that Facebook group Judge has. Uh, a lot of it's all bike related. And uh, make sure you guys read the rules uh, section. Uh, yeah, I added a new one this morning, as a matter of fact. <laughs> oh, okay. Because <laughs> you know what? He's doing something that's unique on uh, Facebook. He's making it about bikers and uh, he's trying to keep camaraderie there, what it's supposed to be about. And it's a really fun group. So it's Bikers and Brotherhood on Facebook. But with that, uh, we're going to have a quick commercial break. And uh, again, I'll talk to you guys after that. Hey, Motorcycle Madhouse listeners, want to share your opinions? Give me feedback or tell me what you're thinking? 
Send me a voice message! Voice messages are an easy way for you to send me audio that might end up in future episodes of Motorcycle Madhouse. They're the latest feature from Anchor, the platform I use to make this show. Here are some of the things I love to hear from you. Questions you might have for me. What you thought of the latest episode. What you think a subject you would like to hear in the future would be. Do your best impressions of me. I'll see all your messages and I might add them into a future episode. Anchor makes this super easy. You can send me a voice message right now from wherever you're listening. Just tap the link in my show notes. I can't wait to hear from ya! Motorcycle Madhouse every Monday at 7 p.m. Central Standard Time and Saturdays 11 a.m. Central Standard Time on YouTube and all major streaming platforms. In your face, all over the place. We're online 24-7-24-7. This station is now the ultimate power in the universe. And welcome back. What a hell of a freaking uh, interview that was with Judge, man. I really love Judge. I can sit there and listen to him for hours about the history. Uh, But right now, if you're looking up in the corner of the uh, video presentation that we got, you are looking at Boston, Massachusetts. And what happened out there this past week as Memorial Day weekend was approaching, they destroyed a Vietnam memorial. Threw flags in the creek, a whole nine yards. This is made, uh, it's uh, rounds on uh, the news and stuff. And this is just sad, if you ask me. We were just talking to Judge and how they had to go through the Vietnam War, what their reception was compared to what it is today. And just to see that they got no respect back then, and to see something like this now is just unfreaking real Unbelievable. You know, hold on, I gotta plug this sucker in, man, if we're gonna get any phone calls. But, uh... Seeing stuff like this, you know, what the hell is wrong with Americans, man? Is this really what our country has come to? That you got to go out, you got to put on swazis on some of these uh, veterans uh, stuff, and then you got to call them purger or butchers and purge them. It's just like the 1960s all over again. So this stuff is just outlandish. Let me know what you think in uh, the description or, or the comment section of the show notes of what's going on out there. If you're listening on the radio, go over to the YouTube channel. And you'll be able to see this video of what's going on. Right now, I'm watching them take American flags out of a creek. They desecrated the flag, threw them in the creek, then they desecrated the memorial. Come on, people, man. What is going on with this country? Really? Uh, anyway, my next segment, when I throw on the call-in uh, segment, I'm going to be talking about a ride that we are actually planning. And uh, I'm actually looking for a woman to interview on Motorcycle Madhouse. 
older lady who's just like Judge lived through history. So if you're interested, email me and we're going to throw together an interview from a woman's perspective. If you're out there, Aunt, we got to get together. I'd like to get you on the show. That'd be awesome. You always keep me grounded anyway. You always uh, burn my ass when I'm getting out of line. <laughs> I love Aunt to death, so we got to get Aunt on uh, the show. But uh, when we come back, I'll talk about uh, what's going on in July as far as this ride is concerned. But this video right here, this is a disgrace. How do you even call yourself an American? Hi, this is James Hollywood Machikari, and if you're listening to this, you obviously like podcasts, and you'll probably like music, too. On Spotify, you can listen to all that in one place for free. You don't even need a premium account. Spotify has a huge catalog of podcasts on every topic, including the Motorcycle Madhouse, the one you're listening to right now. On Spotify, you can follow your favorite podcast so you never miss an episode. Download episodes to listen offline whenever you want and wherever you are. Easily share what you're listening to with your friends via Spotify's integrations with social media platforms like Instagram. And just search for Motorcycle Madhouse on the Spotify app. Or browse podcast in the Your Library tab and follow me so you'll never miss an episode of Motorcycle Madhouse. Spotify is the world's leading music streaming platform. And now it can be your go-to podcast too. Hollywood's Motorcycle Madhouse on Spotify and iTunes Radio. There you go. If you haven't got Spotify, you got to get over there and listen to the Madhouse on the radio. We get a little wicked over there because we don't get uh, censored like we do. Tomorrow, I have a video coming out at 5 p.m. It is titled, Hollywood Goes to the 2019 National Confederations of Clubs Convention. It will be out there. But more importantly, I want you guys to watch it to the end. I have a real uh, good friend, Hot Rod. He's with the A-Bait of Michigan. When I was down, he stepped in, took over the coverage of uh, the convention, accepted the award on our behalf, and he shows what A-Bait is really about. If you want to know brotherhood, you want to ride, I always suggest, and it's only like $25 a year, go join your local A-Bait. They fight for motorcycle rights, they fight for you, and they do it all with brotherhood, man. I'm telling you, man, Hot Rod is, he's the man. That's all I can say. I owe him everything, man. Uh, but he does a real good thing at the end of the video. He read the speech that I was going to read at the convention. Again, I just can't say enough about Hot Rod, man. Hot Rod is the freaking poster child or poster man, whatever you want to call it, for what A-Bait is really about. And I'm telling you, go out and join A-Bait. You're going to love it. Enough of, you know, the questions about, you know, I'll get into the motorcycle club stuff on Saturday, and I'll tell you about that in a minute. But go to an A-Bait party. 
Go, uh, their rallies are awesome. <laughs> are they awesome? You want to have some fun? Go to an A-Bay rally, man. They usually have all the games going on with the, the bikes and stuff. But most important is the way they interact with each other. And as you know, Motorcycle uh, Madhouse, uh, they're a huge, we're a huge supporter of Abate, and you'll see uh, why tomorrow night in that video. Uh, I start you off from the airport, walk you all the way through, man. It's a pretty fun time. I even talk about that crap flight I took. <laughs> Just say I will be flying business class from now on. So, look out for that video tomorrow. Okay, end of July. Uh, the last weekend of July. I don't know if it's like uh, Fridays the 27th or 28th. I got to look it up. I'm going to make the event page. And we're going to be doing an old school ride and camp out for the weekend for Motorcycle Madhouse listeners. So if you want to come up and have a great time, we'll start at the Sugar River uh, Campground. We're going to go all the way west out to the Mississippi River, uh, go see Galena. Then we're going to go to some famous places like Poofy's. Uh, it's a big bar out here. And we're just going to make a big ride and camp out. We're going to do it old school. So we'll start out Friday night, we'll camp, go ride Saturday, then we're going to camp again out by the Mississippi River out there, and just have a big old biker fun time, man, old school, I'm talking fun, you know, screw these big rallies that are throwing all kinds of stuff on you, I don't know if you guys seen my uh, coverage of uh, some of the news coming out of Myrtle Beach, but they are ticking in people left and right, they are just doing obscene type of stuff out in Myrtle Beach. So why go out there and uh, you know pay them uh, you know for coming when it's you, you you know it's just like Rolling Thunder. I was really sad about Rolling Thunder. This year is supposed to be the last year for Rolling Thunder, and it's a real sad event. But uh, you know Trump said he might help. I'm not holding my breath, but you know two hundred thousand dollars really. For permits for that kind of a ride, yeah, you're just trying to squeeze people and Rolling Thunder and their uh, board. It's right to cut that out and just do a local stuff. So, I'll have the event page up soon. Again, we're going to be riding, camping, partying, and having a good old time. I figured we'll try that, uh, you know... Start an annual thing, you know what I mean? You know, maybe get 15, 20 guys and women together and just have a good old time. And that's our, you know, the only cost is going to be for the campground. I think it's like 14 bucks or something. And, uh, you know, of course, you're available for your, uh, you're responsible for your meals because it ain't coming out of my pocket, guys. Sorry. No, I'm just <laughs> Anyway, but uh, with that, I hope you really enjoyed the show. And again, Ant, you got to get a hold of me. We're going to do an interview. I'm going to get a woman's point of view about uh, the 60s and what it was like to live through the events that I just talked about with uh, Judge. And again, go over to Bikers and Brotherhoods over on Facebook and uh, check Judge's uh, stuff out. Today's a little slow day. It's Memorial Day. But uh, we'll be back up and running hardcore on uh, Saturday. Don't forget to check out the videos. Hopefully you guys are enjoying the uh, daily biker news updates. I know I caught some hell today, 
But uh, I'll go into that on uh, Saturday. Uh, yeah, we got a pretty big thing coming up on Saturday. We were just leaked a bunch of information, and uh, it's in our hands that we'll present on Saturday. So look out for that. Don't forget to like us on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram. You'll see some little videos over there on Instagram and stuff I do once in a while. And uh, with that, you guys... Remember, thank a soldier. It is Memorial Day. Remember what it's all about. Hopefully, you guys had a great weekend. Today, it's raining and pouring here in Illinois, but I guess it's nothing different. Uh, until then, I'll see you Saturday for the live. Well, that's it for this week's episode of Motorcycle Madhouse. Don't forget to go over to the Insane Throttle's new YouTube channel and also get your daily dose of biker news every morning at HarleyLiberty.com. If you haven't done so already, go like the new Motorcycle Madhouse Facebook page and until next week, I'm James Hollywood Machikari, and remember, keep that throttle crack wide open.